Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. I'm Nora Lesserson, a PhD student in history at University College London. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Zovinar Darderian. Dr. Darderian is the editor of the newly established website, uh, Entries for the Society for Armenian Studies. She received her PhD in Middle East Studies at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor last May. Today we'll be talking about her dissertation that focuses on 19th century Ottoman Armenian history. So welcome Zovinar on President's Day Monday here in Washington DC, which seems like a good day to talk about governing power and print media. Hi Nora, hi everyone, it's very good to see you in an old home, one of my old homes. (laughs) So I'm excited to talk to you today about your dissertation as I'm just starting the dissertation writing process, so it's good to see that you can come out on the other side. <laughs> um, so I guess tell us in brief, you know, what's, what's the goal of your dissertation? What story or stories were you trying to tell? And um, why were you trying to tell them together? Sure. Um, I think uh, many uh, dissertation writers say that they figure out what their main aim was <laughs> at the end of their writing dissertation yeah. process. But I think there were a number of questions that were intriguing me while I was writing uh, my dissertation uh, and that pushed uh, my research in the direction that my dissertation took. I think one of them was the notions of nation and empire and how they interacted with one another. Um, And in in scholarship, we tend to, in, in, in Ottoman historiography in particular, we tend to think of uh, empire in opposition to nation. Mm-hmm. And for me, it seems like the 19th century personalities that I was, um, um, that I was studying, like Magartish Harimian, Garev Kim Sirvantians, who were um, famous uh, ecclesiastical figures of the time, were both uh, in a nation-making project, involved in a nation-making project. At the same time, a project that was about reforming the empire and strengthening the Ottoman state uh, in the eastern provinces of the Ottoman Empire, which they often referred to as Armenia. So that was one of the questions that I was interested in. And the other one was, um, I, uh, especially when I was starting my graduate studies, uh, the eastern provinces of the Ottoman Empire were really absent from Ottoman um, historiography. Uh, and in Armenian historiography, it seemed that they, well, they, the, the Western Armenia, as it's described in Armenian uh, history, uh, was an object of study. The people who lived there were rarely subjects or agents of history. Um, and I wanted to understand what basically their role was in in the dynamics of the 19th century, in in different processes that were taking place in the 19th century. And one of the processes was the um, ethno-religious community becoming a modern nation, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as the empire transforming into a modern empire. So I think those were the two driving questions uh, for me in my dissertation. Yeah, those Mm -hmm. are big questions. And of Mm -hmm. course, as 
many good histories do. It's a particular, but it also speaks to larger uh, questions that might apply to other communities and just larger theoretical ways of thinking. So I really appreciate that. And I think something I hear you saying is that you're giving a voice, as they like to say in the historiographies, to maybe a voice we haven't heard in the histories before. So that's always um, mm-hmm. it's just fun to hear things we haven't heard before. So I really appreciate that. So in the dissertation, you also mm-hmm. take a really unique approach to the archive, mm-hmm. and so I was hoping you could explain a little bit about why you took that approach and how you incorporated it into your, your work and you know, how it also speaks to the, the goals you were just talking about for your dissertation. Right. Uh, I mean, I think that was the, my f- first chapter on the archives was probably one of my favorite yeah. uh, chapters. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, and, um, I I wrote it after uh, I had done some research in the Nubar Library in Paris, mm-hmm. which is one of my main archives, um, but also in, in Maten Adaran and the Ottoman um, archi- Prime Ministry archives in Istanbul. And the chapter really began uh, when I was taking a seminar with my advisor, Katim Babayan, and she I had already picked uh, certain files from the archive mm-hmm. and she asked me why did you pick these files <laughs> in particular <laughs> um, and that sort of was the beginning of my yeah. uh, chapter uh, but also we were reading a number of um, theoretical works on mm-hmm. on um, like Arlette Farge um, French historian who had reflected on um, what historians do in archives and how archives themselves um, shape the way we do research and and what we uh, do research on. Um, So it became sort of a a, a chapter trying to understand my motives and and my reflection on on my research methodology, basically, in the archives. Yeah, I found Mm -hmm. it really brave and inspirational that you inserted yourself in the history because we all know that the historian is the one writing the history but sometimes it's tried I mean often try to mask that and pretend it's you know this deity giving you this history and that's not how it works and so I really liked bringing sort of your role as an author Mm -hmm. and a subjective uh, mind (laughs) into the process and I really appreciated that and I think it makes it stronger and I think there's a fear and maybe it's just a woman fear but it's a Mm -hmm. fear that it's going to make it weaker by bringing in your own thought Mm -hmm. process Um, but I think you did it in a really effective way in a way that I really want to take seriously as I'm writing Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah and yeah I think I mean obviously this dissertation is not written for um, a wider audience Mm -hmm. Uh, but if we do on the long run I think think of it that way Um, yeah I think we I think obviously all all historians hopefully do reflect on their experiences (laughs) in the archive but we never really openly uh, talk about them so much Uh, and then uh, the lay person reading our writings does it's not understand. really familiar exactly. with the processes that are involved in uh, researching. And <laughs> totally. And it's, I, I always think of you as a very serious and careful historian, which I really admire about you. And I think this really added 
to that. You, you, don't, you didn't just say, pick your words carefully. You explained to us what that process looked like. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, from a different lens, I find that as I'm writing and people in the D.C. area who maybe don't, aren't academics themselves see me writing, it does mm-hmm. really help them understand what it looks like to make a history, to tell that mm-hmm. story. And so I'm seeing the power of that in a different direction, too, where it's not just this printed out page of words. It's a process. Yeah. And so I really like that. And I um, think, I mean, obviously the readers will have to tell me that, but I think yeah. it changes <laughs> the way you read a uh, historical piece when you know yes. what the researcher was totally. interested in. And I think it also actually works really nicely with the topic then of your research, which mm-hmm. is um, writing and uh, let me just try to make this connection, how the writing is accomplished. So you're talking about petitioners, mm-hmm. the community members in uh Western Armenia or the Eastern Provinces. <laughs> yes. This directionality is funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and why they're writing, to whom they're writing, um, why they're using the words they're using. Mm-hmm. You're kind of analyzing that own um, writing representation process in your historical actors. So I think it's yeah. nice that's actually reflected then in your own process. So mm-hmm. to that end, I guess, tell us a little bit about the relationship between print media, like periodicals, handwritten petitions, and um, community action in your dissertation. What does this mm-hmm. relationship tell us about the relationship between power and governance or decision-making for communities at this time, or like however you want to articulate yeah, it? Yeah, sure. I was very interested in how you're going to describe the topic of my dissertation <laughs> <laughs> because it's always very hard to articulate it. We can work on that. <laughs> um, but um, I think part of the reason why I started to look into um, how... So I focused on, on the province of Van and Armenians in the province of Van, right? And um, I was interested in understanding how they were connected with the rest of the empire and perhaps also beyond uh, the empire um, to see what it meant also for them to be part of the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. uh, and how can we derive their Ottomanness in a way, yeah. right? Uh, because in the especially in the beginning of the 19th century, the Ottoman state. Um, wasn't very powerful in the region as mm. the Kurdish tribes had more power and um, it was in the 1840s that the Ottoman state began a war against the Kurdish tribes uh, to weaken them. Uh, at the same time, I think we often also think of these eastern provinces as isolated spaces, places mm-hmm. in the Adam- Ottoman Empire. So following big what uh, media they had access to and how in- they engaged with that media, was a way to understand how they were part of the uh, empire beyond the administrative aspects of the Ottoman Empire. So, um, Ottoman, especially 19th century Ottoman history, is often very focused on uh, Ottoman state administration. Uh, um, uh, and I wanted to find a non-state is is too strong of a word, mm-hmm. I think, to say for it, because obviously the state had some role in um, uh, in controlling the, the media. Uh, um, but I think they were also, uh, the media also allowed for creative ways for people uh, to engage with each other across the empire. Mm-hmm. So, so I looked at, 
I tried to figure out what newspapers and uh, periodicals came to Van and how they were transported uh, and shared among different people mm-hmm. uh, in the empire, if, well, especially in the eastern provinces. Uh, and of course, they received periodicals uh, like Basmalbet from uh, from Venice as well. Um, and I could find fewer examples of uh, books and uh, periodicals that came from the Russian Empire, mm. although it would have made more sense because they were closer to yeah. the Russian Empire than Istanbul. Uh, but it seemed to me that they they uh, received a number of newspapers uh, from Istanbul, and they also uh, wrote to those newspapers, and sometimes their letters were published mm. in those newspapers. Um, so, in a way, it was... I wanted to write a local history that was also a trans-regional history and this following the communication patterns. Uh, I, I think allowed me uh, to do that kind of work. Yeah, so you, I think you're talking about media in some way as connection. Media is what connects a local mm-hmm. place to a another region, right? Mm-hmm. So I think what we can start talking about here is the vocabulary of these regions, what's being connected mm-hmm. by media. So the Armenians, I guess we can say, are an ethno-confessional community, right? Mm -hmm. So in how are they thinking of themselves, or are they thinking of themselves as a nation, or how are they thinking of themselves, I guess Mm -hmm. is the first question. And, um, well, let's start with that. How are the Armenians thinking of themselves at this time? (laughs) That's a a spoonful. I mean, here, obviously, and uh, I'm certainly not the first one to say it, but uh, the print media obviously creates the space to imagine the nation. Right. Like Benedict Anderson uh, wrote about it. And uh, in the case of Armenians, I um, definitely see that happening. But mm-hmm. also, um, and, and also in terms of imagining a, a, a fatherland. Um, ah. uh, a more territorial aspect of the nation. Um, but beyond just the, what was being written uh, in, in providing this imagination of the nation, I think it was the networks that the circulation of the print media uh, allowed that created stronger uh, ties among, among different Armenian mm-hmm. communities. Uh, within the empire and beyond it as well. Uh, and um, you can see people writing letters uh, to uh, newspapers published in Istanbul from from Europe, from, um, from different parts of the Ottoman Empire. So this becomes a way of, uh, of connecting people with each other and of mm-hmm. people knowing what's happening in different Armenian communities. Um, uh, around around the world, basically. So the idea of being mm-hmm. one Armenian community is being encouraged by print media in one instance, mm-hmm. and I guess tell us, you know, how is this community being mm-hmm. imagined? Like, what are the words being used? Sure. Is it understood as being global or local? And mm-hmm. is this different from what was happening, say, prior to print media? Sure. So uh, I think. One thing to mention uh, is 
by focusing on print media, we mm-hmm. had um, often thought that the imagining of the nation is sort of um, um, the work of of, of uh, literary communities mm-hmm. and elites, if we may use that word, and which meant also uh, it was the work of places like Istanbul or mm-hmm. Tbilisi. Uh, and I was trying to understand how people in Van, who were not always necessarily literate, uh, engaged in this process of nation-making. Yeah. Um, and to do that, I followed uh, what was uh, being written in handwritten petitions that were sent from Van uh, to the uh, Patriarchate, uh, Armenian Patriarchate in Istanbul, as well as the Catholic state in Echmiakli. And I carefully followed how people described their communities uh, between the 1820s and the 1870s and mm-hmm. how uh, that description of community transformed um, uh, uh, throughout the 19th century. And I, I noticed a particular uh, shift in the 1840s, but much more so in the 1850s. Uh, in the sense that they started to refer to the Azg, mm. which, of course, has fluid definitions, but one of its definitions is the nation. Um, and uh, and they increasingly started to uh, talk about the love for their mm. nation and also love for the patria, the, mm. their fatherland. Um, and it, this was, we have to keep in mind, this was also a time when a um, a very new representative system was being um, put together uh, in Constantinople, the Armenian um, constitution that was adopted in 1863, that uh, along which was a national assembly was created with representative figures. Of course, it's not the representation, democratic representation that we have right. in our countries nowadays, but it was the beginning of that, uh, towards that system. And I found that petitioners who may not have been literate themselves, and uh, it was probably somebody else writing their petitions, uh, often used this love of nation and love of patria as ways uh, through which they would establish their role and their voice within this transforming and newly forming mm-hmm. sense of a political community, right? I think one thing that is important uh, to keep in mind is that, sure, there was a sense of Armenianness, most likely, very likely, <laughs> in, uh, in the previous eras, but it's seems to me that it didn't necessarily translate into a collective political action mm. uh, type of community uh, where now the community was gaining more and more of a political meaning and, and, a, and, a, and a space and means of governance within the empire. Um, and I don't see this as this process as happening in opposition to uh, the making of the Ottoman Empire because mm. the constitution, the Armenian constitution was also very much an Ottoman project mm. coming out of Ottoman reforms. Uh, 
and um, um, validated by the Ottoman Sultan. Of yeah. course, there were many drafts that were written that had to go back and forth between uh, the, the Sublime Port and the Ar- Armenian Patriarchate, but uh, it was something that was done in cooperation with one another. Yeah, super interesting. I guess two very uh, basic questions. Mm-hmm. Before they ask what was what were Armenians sort of referring to their community as, mm-hmm. and also on the other side, we in Ottoman history often hear a lot about the millet community. I mean, were the Armenians yeah. did the Armenians understand themselves as a millet? Like, who was using that language? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> uh, from the petitions I had from the early from the 1820s, 30s, I had the sense that there was more um, reference to families mm. uh, and God and uh, of course gods remain a part of the petitions but um, but a religious sense of community was more what was being expressed um, uh, rather than the national one. Okay, so a religious mm-hmm. community, so that makes sense. Yeah, and in terms, and 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 to be clear, the ask that they're not they're talking about in the 1850s and 60s is still defined by ap- the Apostolic Armenian Church, yes, and okay. not the Protestants and Catholic Armenians are not still not part of it. Uh, at least in 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 the set of positions that I'm looking at, mm-hmm. um, and and the notion of the millet comes in. And I think Ask could very much also mean the millet okay, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but w- one becomes... But the, but I think the boundaries of the millet uh, within the Christian realm were quite fluid because you see in petitions, uh, petitioners saying, if you don't do what we're asking for, then you'll become Assyrians. Mm. We'll turn to the Assyrian millet because huh. they're close to us in their religion yeah. um, and, and their way of being. So it, w- it had become also a negotiating tool. Mm. Um, so there is the consciousness of, a, of a administrative power mm-hmm. of each millet coming about uh, okay. in the mid-19th century. So what I'm hearing mm. a lot I'm literally taking notes for myself. Audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I'm hearing a lot is that at this time, mm-hmm. communities that already existed were um, in some ways mobilized, they were politicized, or starting to be politicized, mobilized, it bureaucratized. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. there's new meanings and opportunities being given, and so therefore, actions and language and all these things are responding mm-hmm. in kind. It's a little bit oversimplifying, but... No, I mean, there is a little bit of the, all of that, you're right. Yeah. I think mobilization to me sounds like a very centralized um. form of action, but I think a lot of what is also happening is um, is people trying to uh, find their roles in this place where means of communication is transforming, mm-hmm. the means of governance is transforming, um, 
the speed with which communication is yeah. occurring and the speed in which people are moving about the empire uh, is changing and they're trying to find their place uh, in, in this uh, processes that are happening and transforming the empire, mm-hmm. um, which is also transforming relations of power within the empire. So they're trying to find their uh, new ways of establishing their own power. Yeah, and I really like that idea that they're trying to find their roles and their place mm-hmm. in this new space and process. I think that's really um, that's a really suggestive and description and useful description for historians at this time. Um, so a related point to all this is that I'm currently looking at an um, Armenian from the Ottoman Empire from the capital who came to New York for the first time in the 1830s. Mm-hmm. And, he, and you know, he went back to Istanbul through the 1840s during the first uh, you know, Tantimat era, and he was, I think, very much mm-hmm. believed in reform. So a lot of these changes in power processes that you're talking about. But I have this interesting document where in the 1880s in New York, mm-hmm. he uh, has to, it's a census document, so he has to tell the census taker, you know, the country of mm-hmm. his birth and the country of his parents' birth. Mm-hmm. And so for himself, he puts Turkey. We know he was born in Constantinople. For mm-hmm. his parents, he puts Armenia. Mm-hmm. So I guess, can you tell us what this tells you? And yeah. also, if there's an area called Armenia, you know, when mm-hmm. was this area? What is this area? When did it start being called Armenia? What do you think maybe he was referring to? Sure. <laughs> but uh, that's a very interesting <laughs> uh, piece of information. And I think um, Constantinople was certainly not Armenia yes. uh, um, for, for the people that, you know, for the authors that I came across from the 19th century. Uh, and I particularly have this priest um, who be, um, who became a celibate priest uh, named Yeremia Devgans, and he was uh, born in Vaughan. He received his ecclesiastic education in Vaughan. And he traveled to to Constantinople in, I I think, the 1850s, and he described his feelings towards Constantinople as this foreign place. Mm. Uh, And there you can see how he perceived of his homeland, which he called Hyrenic, right, the fatherland, uh, and sometimes also referred to as Armenia. So there was this sense that the eastern provinces that they perceived as as their fatherland and sometimes referred to as Armenia was in some way separate country, culturally Mm -hmm. especially, um, from Constantinople. Uh, On the other hand, there was a sense that things are more just in Constantinople and that this justness has to be also brought to the region of Armenia. Um, Armenia is obviously an old Mm -hmm. name, geographic name, uh, and I'm not sure if they necessarily start using more uh, in the 19th century, but I'm not surprised that your (laughs) uh, (laughs) historical figure, if his parents were born in, I don't know, uh, 
van or gars or mm-hmm. mush that they he would describe it as Armenia. Got it. Um, yeah. And I know you were saying, you know, I know it were just it's just conjecture, but mm-hmm. do you have any sense of what his parents, uh, you know, could have done for work or mm-hmm. if you know if they were migrating to Constantinople sometime before 1818. You don't have before 1818. Yeah, <laughs> when he was born, he definitely was born in Constantinople. Yeah. Uh, well, I cover obviously a little bit later than yeah. that. People moved for different reasons, and I, I focus one of my chapters on these labor migrants yes. who could be porters. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if they did menial jobs, I think it's only people who had some financial means who could go and be labor migrants. Yeah. So we have to realize that the poorest of people in the provinces were not those who would necessarily migrate because they had right. to have some money for their travel expenses and their paperwork. Yes. Um, but they could be a porter, they could be um, a cook mm-hmm. in Istanbul, who I think made more, a little bit more money, um, or a hairdresser. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if they were coming from a... Um, well-established family with a lot of uh, wealth, and mm-hmm. which I don't know if you know all these details. No, about <laughs> I know nothing except the census record. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's, so that kind of brings up the role, maybe, just thinking mm-hmm. about his parents, say, as, being, as living mm-hmm. in what he conceives of as Armenia, um, we're sort of thinking of them in a certain way. And I know you talk about the priests and the ecclesiastical leaders representing mm-hmm. Vanazis in a certain way yeah. and um, in certain circumstances. So can you just right. tell us a little bit about when uh, people from this region were conceptualized and represented mm-hmm. and how they were conceptualized and why they were sort of represented in that way? Sure. <laughs> I, um, so I think what s- s- first got me interested in this question of how, uh, are, how people in general in the eastern provinces are being represented in print media was when I was reading uh, Makartich Kariman, who's obviously a very, very, very famous um, ecclesiastic and literary figure from the 19th century. Um, he had established a periodical in Istanbul, which he transported then to uh, the Varag Monastery uh, right outside of the city of Van. Um, and he wrote a lot about the um, the nature and and the history of the region. Uh, yet he wrote very little about what was happening mm. uh, at the particular time, um, and that kind of surprised me and annoyed me because I wanted to know <laughs> what was happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but then I realized that there was a particular way, mm, and obviously these things you realize when you start reading other. Um, scholarship outside of your field, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and come across similar um, representations of, of, um, of either the provinces or the Orient, right? Um, and descriptions of the e- Armenia being a backward place mm-hmm. um, as opposed to modern. And I think earlier we were talking about the meanings of these concepts. Right. Um, and I think they're very much also symbolic concepts mm-hmm. uh, that were 
to establish relations of power bef- between different communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, not different ethnic communities, but different communi- communities of different projects, I guess. So, so Kharinian was very much involved in, um, in, ref- in bringing Ottoman reform to the provinces. Uh, and I think in order to do that, also, <laughs> you had to argue that the provinces are in need right. of reform. <laughs> uh, it's not to say that things were bright and uh, sunny and right. <laughs> everything was going great in the provinces, but also, for example, w- one of the arguments was that there is that people in the provinces are not interested in education, mm. um, that they're resisting uh, against schools, uh, and and that kind of representation sort of uh, took my attention because Kharimian himself and his student Cervantes, uh, Garagin Cervantes, who was a very famous uh, ecclesiastic figure and ethnographer of the 19th century, they both were educated in Van mm. until uh, their twi- early 20s. Um, and uh, they were very well informed individuals of at least history and uh, and and had, had a very strong um, hold of the Armenian language. Uh, they're very eloquent in their writing, um, and so I asked my question: if they resisted, if there's so much resistance in Van, how th- how did they access have access to so much mm. knowledge yeah. uh, and education and try to uh, try to find out how people would receive an education mm-hmm. uh, before uh, the reforms were actually brought mm-hmm. uh, uh, to the empire. And and I found out that already starting in the 1820s, there were attempts to open schools mm-hmm. in Van uh, that were not um, um, forced upon the region by mm-hmm. the patriarchate, but, uh, but rather local initiatives uh, and there was a sense, at least among the those who could afford, that they wanted to have their uh, children become literate and mm. receive a kind of education that maybe you would not be able to receive mm-hmm. in earlier periods of time. So um, I think the representation, just like to me, it it matched colonial powers where yeah. they represent the colonies in a particular way to justify. Uh, th- their own governance uh, right. and <laughs> uh, and reforms that they bring to uh, the provinces, if it makes sense. Yes, that <laughs> makes sense. And like any fundraising pitch, you really need to show that they're worthy, but also in need. So you can't, yeah. they can't be. <laughs> that's yeah. Out. But I think my, my why I wanted to to show that this is uh, to a certain extent is a representation because I think many historians have taken this as how things were yes, in totally. the empire and I think we need to or in the in the eastern provinces and I think we need to question the, those assumptions yeah. um, um, because that turns Armenians in the pro- provinces uh, it takes away all of their agency totally. um, and um, erases them as historical subjects yeah I mean that's mm-hmm. a really smart an important turn to just to to read them as to read it as a representation, sort of to understand what else is going on mm-hmm. there. So, I guess 
to tie our conversation into something you said initially in terms of your goals of the project mm -hmm. about sort of the relationship between nation and empire, of course, before it's a period of just collapse of empire and the rise of the nation state. So um, this is really exploratory, I guess. Mm -hmm. How, if a nation... Is it weird to say a nation is operational within an, in an empire? Obviously, mm -hmm. it's not a self-governing nation of laws in the way that we understand it, but yeah. what does it mean for a nation to operate within a larger empire? empire. Um, or is that not the right question? Yeah. No, I, I, it's not definitely not the wrong question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I guess it's a hypothetical question yes. because <laughs> at the end it didn't work that way. <laughs> But I think what I'm, I'm saying, I'm hoping to say in my dissertation is that, yeah, just because it didn't end up in a way that nations, uh, multiple nations are not uh, within a larger polity, mm -hmm. uh, doesn't mean that people in the mid-19th century thought that this could not work. Right. Or that uh, the fact that there were discourses about the nation, about strengthening the nation, mm -hmm. did not mean that they were necessarily in opposition to the empire. Right. It, uh, and in fact, I think many of the historical subjects that I'm examining are thinking that it's through the help of the imperial center that they will be able to work this thing out of having um, of having a strong nation within the Ottoman Empire, uh, and and the empire would help them create these boundaries with other nations. So, um, but at the end, it didn't work out. Sure. <laughs> but I think it's mm. very important mm -hmm. to understand that in some ways the empire was being conceived of at this time, say by these Armenian figures, as mm -hmm. a place that contained nations like they didn't see nation as being antithetical to mm -hmm. an empire yeah and i feel like that's something important for us to understand as we mm -hmm. look back upon that and that say um i don't i, I want to say a liberation movement wasn't necessarily to be mm -hmm. out of the imperial model it was to sort of be it was sort of an issue of governance yeah within that yeah so they the the there are references to f freedom, right, mm -hmm. among right. for the Armenian nation and for the Armenian fatherland. But as you as you described right now, I think that freedom has more to do with establishing justice mm -hmm. uh, and and some sort of equality. Right. There are new concepts, obviously, for this period. Right. Um, and and some sort of uh, representative power that's yeah. representing of representative of the people yeah. and of course it's a, the, the, the negotiations were about who is really the people mm -hmm. and whose voice are we supposed to listen to uh, can can like porters and um, people who are engaged in menial work yeah should their voice matter or not right right uh, so these are negotiations that are happening uh, in the mid-19th century, and I think there are negotiations that uh, are part of a making of a political nation as well. Yeah, and I think mm. I 
mean, there's, there's in some ways no bigger question still, even today, you know, whose voices matter, who should we listen mm-hmm. to, how do we negotiate the power we have and the power that we live within, the systems we live within. Yeah. So, I mean, this is just totally fascinating for me. Um, I guess tell us, you know, what comes next with this project or other projects? How mm-hmm. are you taking this forward? Right. Uh, I mean, I, I think now you gave me an opportunity to reflect more <laughs> on my dissertation. <laughs> but I definitely do hope to um, to turn it into a book, though I felt like I needed to take a break from yes. it for a few months. Right. <laughs> uh, but they were also, while I was doing research for my dissertation, there were so many interesting sources, unexplored yeah. sources that I had come across. And um, some of them related to... Uh, marriage problems Mm. in the Ottoman Empire. (laughs) Hashtag marriage problems. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I think think they're a very good way of uh, understanding how this newly uh, establishing millet Mm -hmm. system was functional and dysfunctional. Uh, uh, So I'm hoping to have an article out on that matter. um, And um, a few other projects related to marriage and sexual practices. Uh, yeah. n- discourses about marriage and sexual pra- right. practices uh, among Armenians in the Ottoman Empire are in the works. <laughs> that sounds great. I look forward to reading those. With you, in terms of your book project, I know you mentioned a little bit mm-hmm. earlier that you maybe are imagining a slightly wider audience mm-hmm. um, than your niche audience like me. <laughs> uh, what no. does that sort of look like in your mind right now? Um, I mean, I think I, I wrote my dissertation as well for a um, for Ottoman historians yes. and Middle East studies historians, hopefully. And I think I have to work more on, in that direction. Yeah. Uh, of course, I think any historian is happy when uh, people outside of their field yes. <laughs> uh, read their writings and I think I was sort of trained to I don't think my dissertation came out with that way but I was trained to write in a way that's more narrating I think you did I think your voice really came uh, through especially the archive part so I think that's kind of um, remaining scholarly but trying to narrate in a way that's more yes um, comprehensive by the lay audience yeah and I find that process even as I'm writing helps me write better if I am really accountable for everything I'm saying and making it make sense to someone who doesn't have a you know serious background in these Mm -hmm. topics I feel it makes my arguments stronger so I think it's probably good for everybody (laughs) yeah and when you're forced to clarify yes um your words and explain every yeah. word you're saying and you sometimes understand you don't really know the meaning <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> and you're hiding behind your <laughs> language yeah. Um, but yeah it's, it's great and I, mm. I think you I can't wait to read it I really look up to the work you're doing and Thank you. uh, thanks so much for talking to me today thank you it's so good to be talking to you <laughs> bye everybody bye. tune in next time